This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 15. Johann Sebastian Bach served as the music director at St. Thomas Church in Leipzig, Germany for much of his career. He's one of the most influential church musicians that the church has ever known. Most of us would immediately recognize his cello suite number one in G. You might not recognize that title, but if we started playing it, you would know it immediately. It's one of the most familiar pieces of classical music. And then his works Mass in B Minor and St. Matthew Passion are regarded as some of the most influential compositions of the Reformation period and are still played in churches around the world today. When Bach began a new song, he wrote two letters on the sheet of paper before he penned one single note, J.J. Those letters are shorthand for the Latin phrase, Jesu Juve which meant Jesus help or Jesus save. Bach recognized how he needed the help of the Lord in his work as he sought to write music that would help the church express its worship unto God. When Bach completed a new song, he used another set of letters to sign off. S-D-G, which stand for the Latin words soli deo gloria, which translates to what in English? Glory to God alone. Come on, y'all. Glory to God alone. So Bach explained to a friend that he wrote in a letter that his aim was to write songs to the glory of God alone and the awakening of pious devotion. So to summarize, Bach was trying to compose music with the help of Jesus to the glory of God for the building up of his church. Last week, we reach one of the most thrilling accounts in Scripture, the definitive event of the Old Testament, except maybe for creation. That one's very important, actually. God redeemed his people from the Egyptians and saved them from slavery in order that they might worship and serve him alone. Now, today we hear the people of God sing a song of that great salvation. Exodus 14 told the story of God's saving work in prose. Exodus 15 tells it in poetry, or to be more specific, it tells it in song. And there are other places in God's word that this same methodology is used. God speaks in narrative, and then he speaks in poetry and singing. Judges 4 and 5 is one of my favorite places this happens. God delivers his people from the Canaanites in a supernatural way. And then Deborah and Barak stand atop the mountain singing of God's great salvation. I like to picture them holding hands singing this song. That's not in the Bible, but I just think it's helpful. Uh, Hannah, after God gives her the blessing of a child in the birth of Samuel, the story is told and then Hannah responds in a song, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, after the declaration is told to Mary, her heart erupts with praise that God would 
come and dwell among us and that she would be highly favored. Her heart magnifies God for what he has told to her. What we learn from these passages is that after God demonstrates his glory, shows his power or moves in a miraculous way, his people sing in glad response. And we rightly think of Moses as a prophet and a deliverer and leader and the author of the first five books of the Bible. But Moses was also a songwriter. Moses wrote this song here in Exodus 15. He wrote a couple of others. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 to 43. And also Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses. This psalm we're looking at this morning was written by Moses, but like Bach, with the help of God and to the aim of seeing him glorified. It was written with the help of God because it was the Holy Spirit who writes through Moses this part of Holy Scripture. And as we'll hear, this song is aimed at nothing short of God's glory. What has God done in your life that you have to sing about? Let me ask the same question with more emphasis on one word. What has God done in your life that you have to sing about? Exodus 15, 1-21 contains the very first song recorded in Scripture. And it is glorious. Following God's great act of salvation, Moses leads the people in this glad song of salvation The hearts and lives of the people have been so dramatically affected by the work of God's mighty hand in delivering them. Now they sing of the Lord's greatness and goodness and his salvation. So my prayer is that as we study the song of Moses, that we would join him in singing and make it our song as well. That these words would tune our hearts to sing God's praise That we might be a singing people who tell of who our God is and all that he's done for us in Christ. The song, I think, is most easily divided by two sections. But for the sake of us walking through it together, I want to provide three exhortations from this passage. One, sing to the Lord, verses 1 through 3. Second, sing of all the Lord has done. Verses 4 through 11. And finally, sing of what the Lord will do. Verses 12 through 21. You get a sense of already of how this song is laid out. Declaring the glory of God, looking back to his great acts, and looking forward to his great promises. That's where we're headed. Stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's word. And we'll see that come to light. These words are unlike any other words we hear throughout the week. These are God's holy and inerrant words, though written long ago, speak to you and me today. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. And my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed into the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, the place that our song begins is with its audience. Sing to the Lord, verses 1 through 3. This is a song of praise and celebration to the Lord, and it invites all of his people to join in. This is a theocentric song, a God-centered song. It's about God from the first note of the melody. This song tells of who God is and what he has done for his people. Not one time does Moses mention himself or his role in the story. Why? Well, because Moses was never the point. His part was to point people to the God who had revealed himself and given such a great salvation. The opening three verses are... Well, they're like a little school of theology. They sing of who God is and what God is like. 
In the songs of Scripture, two things are happening at the same time. God's people are singing to Him, and God is speaking to us. In the songs of Scripture, those two things are happening at the same time. God's people are singing to Him, and God is speaking to us. So let's look at a few of the lessons that this hymn teaches us about the Lord. First, in verse 1, He is the God who saves. The Israelites had been held captive for 400 years in bitter bondage. And now they sing the sweetness of being liberated by God. He has triumphed gloriously. His horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The saving acts of God are first and foremost on the tongue of his people. Now, as Americans, this is not that challenging for us to understand. Our national anthem contains the story of the War of 1812, where we once again defeated the English and their allies. As Francis Scott Key watched Old Glory fly triumphantly over Fort McHenry. You know the song I'm talking about? Yeah. And when we sing it, we recall the freedom we now live in. In this song, the Israelites really didn't do anything, now did they? No, God did it all for them. This is a song to him about his great salvation. We see in verse 2 that he is a personal God. Look at the pronouns used in verse 2. My strength, my song, My salvation. The children of Israel are singing from a place of experience. They aren't guessing around at who God is. They knew he was their God. Can you sing those words today? Can you sing, you are my God and my strength? Can you sing to God? You are my salvation. The God being sung of is not a cold and distant deity, but a warm and near Savior. This is the God who knew the suffering of his people, who heard their cry to him from bondage, who saw their plight, who remembered his promise to be their God and for them to be his chosen and beloved people. That's what the end of Exodus chapter 2 taught us. He's a personal God, and this leads so effortlessly into our next lesson of who God is. He is the covenant-keeping God. He's both my God and my Father's God. Moses is not praising a God of his own making, but the same God who had been working in time and space in the lives of his people from the very beginning. The same God who promised to Adam and Eve that one day her seed would crush the head of the serpent. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who promised to bless the whole world through this family who walked by faith in things unseen and on God's promise stood. The God of Joseph. Do you remember this from a few weeks ago? 
the God of Joseph, whose bones being carried to themselves testified to the God who keeps his word. And that's what they're singing of. God keeps his word. And the fourth lesson we see is that the Lord is a man of war. Let's remember in all of our thinking about God, and we want to take all of his attributes into consideration when we say this, but he is not less than a mighty warrior who fights on behalf of his people. Our God is not a tame nor weak deity. He is the Lord of all, and he will exercise dominion over all until, as I sang as a kid, every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. He is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. Fifth, the final lesson we learn here in these opening few verses is that the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now, I just love this. So the way that God spoke to Moses back in chapter 3, he said, my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. That was God's revelation to his people. And now look at this song as they sing back to God. They repeat the revelation that God had given them as the content of their song. God says, this is who I am. And they reply, this is who you are. You are Yahweh. This is the first time we hear the Israelites with God's name on their lips. God's name on the praises of his people. In the unfolding story of Scripture, Moses stops to sing. He sings to the Lord, proclaiming to God and all who would listen who God is. Now, do you think that God needed to be reminded who he was? Of course not. But Moses did. And these clumsy kids walking through the wilderness will and he will never change. One of the reasons we sing is to proclaim biblically, clearly, poetically, beautifully who God is. He is the one who is worthy of unending songs, the one worthy of our praise. I think back to Bach who said, I'm writing for God's glory and that pious devotion might be raised in the hearts of his people. This is why we sing, for God's glory and so that our lives might be enveloped in the story that we're singing, so our thinking and our feeling and our living would be wrapped around the glory of God that we so love to sing of. So sing to the Lord is the first exhortation from this text. The next verses call us to sing of all the Lord has done. Verses 4 through 12, this group of verses focuses its attention on how the Lord provided salvation for his people. Defeating and destroying his enemies. Yet, there is another group of people silently present in these verses. They're never mentioned, but they are surely there. The people whom God saves through this act of judgment and deliverance. Last week, we spent the entire sermon seeing how God saved the people from the Egyptians. Now I want to just look briefly at how this song summarizes the story. What are the things that the Lord has done? 
Well, first, the Lord has demonstrated his power. Psalm chapter 77 is an echo of what we sing here in Exodus 15. Verses 14 and 15 declare, You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The power of God, we saw last week, was exercised over nature, over the sea itself, as it was split into two by the breath, the ruach of God. We looked at this miraculous event as the people of God stood on the eastern shore, and the wind starts on the east, so they're waiting for the waters to part as it can make its way to them. And then they walked through on dry, dry, dry ground. Well, last week told us that this wind came. This week tells us where that wind came from. The nostril of God. What a gross word, nostril. Well, there it is, the nostril of God. God was the source of this wind. The poet is using anthropomorphic language to help us see and trace the origin of this wind. This wasn't just nature running its course. This is the God who rules and reigns over all nature and all created things, using it for his own glory and for his salvific purposes. That's what's happening here. And through this language, we are able to see and trace the origin of this wind. Uh, well, when I thought about that this week, it made me think of this old Billy Graham quote that I first heard on a DC Talk cassette tape. <laughs> Kids, on their way home, ask your parents what a cassette tape is. <laughs> or your grandparents, actually. Billy Graham once said this in a sermon. Can you see God? Have you ever seen him? I've never seen God. I know he exists. I've never seen the wind. Have you ever seen the wind? I see the effects of the wind. But I've never seen the wind. There's a mystery to it. And here Moses unpacks the mystery of the wind. Showing that this was not just nature. This was the power of God on display in saving his people. It also shows in these verses that the Lord has defeated his enemies. We hear the taunt of those enemies in verse 9. I will pursue. I will take over. I will divide the spoil. I'll draw my sword and destroy the people of God. Well, in Exodus 14 and 15, we see those plans and how futile they are. The Lord instead pursues glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They are overtaken by the power of God. The spoils of Egypt sink to the bottom of the floor and then float again, washing upon the shore to show God's demonstration of authority over them. The right hand of the Lord stretched out against his enemies, and they are, in fact, the ones destroyed. How comprehensive this is. One metaphor won't do. Moses uses both water and fire to show just how comprehensive the victory of the Lord was. When we think about this watery grave, we see how the Egyptians sank. Verse 5, 
They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 10 adds, they sink like lead. How quickly do stones and heavy lead sink? Fast. Thank you, thank you, Rusty. One scientist from Midway Back says it depends on the density. These are heavy stones sinking to the bottom. And what sank them? The powerful hand of God. And then we hear of the fiery holiness of God that we first met at that burning bush back at Mount Moriah. We've seen in the pillar of fire that attends the people of God, the nearness of his presence. But here, his holiness doesn't just speak. It consumes his enemies. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Now that word stubble is the same word that Moses used back in chapter 5. After Moses stood toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and demanded, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who, who is Yahweh that I would obey his voice? I will not let them go. And then do you remember what he does? He, he doubles down on their workload, giving them the same daily quota, but he takes away from them the straw needed to make bricks. The word Moses used there to describe that straw was stubble. The stubble. So here, the Lord destroys the Egyptians like stubble. Just a small reminder of the perfect justice of God that he alone will execute. All for the sake of his own glory and name. And then the final proof we see here of what the Lord has done is that the Lord has given salvation to his people. And now we're at this silent people group in this section of the song. But no doubt the Lord has done it all. The Lord has given salvation to his people. And he did it through the demonstration of his power and through the destruction of his enemies. If the Lord is the focus of our song, then his salvation is its theme. God's salvation is the theme of our song. We sing with our lips and with our lives how God has given us so great a salvation. The Lord has demonstrated his power most perfectly in Jesus Christ. When we, like the Israelites, were hemmed in by the sea of our own sin, with no hope of escape, God sent his one and only Son to part the waters of God's wrath and judgment so that, and he walked through death itself in order to redeem us. The Lord destroyed his enemy, Satan, along with sin and the grave by the working of his mighty hand who upon the cross defeated Satan and sin and death in the most surprising way through the death of Jesus Christ, dying in our place, shedding his blood in our place so that he might wash us white as snow. And what we see in the shadows of the Exodus story, you and I have seen perfectly in the light of Christ. I came across this old Puritan prayer this week. And there's such confidence in this. 
And this is the kind of confidence that you and, have, you and I have because of what Jesus has done. It starts like this. Oh, God of my exodus. What a title. That's who he is. The God of our exodus. And then he prays, give me the assurance that in Christ I died, and in him I rose, and in his life I live, and in his victory I triumph, and in his ascension I shall be glorified. Christ is the true and better exodus of which we sing. I just want to say to you who are not yet in Christ, you're still enemies of God. We don't expect you to sing the songs that we sing when we gather. What a weird thing to gather in an elementary school with a bunch of strangers and to sing to a God you can't see. We don't expect you to sing with us. So just the pressure's off. If you want to just come and listen every week, you you have the poor preacher's permission to do so. But we sing because of what God has done in us. You see. And we sing to a God that hears us and listens. We believe that's true. That's why we sing to him. But we sing as though you are overhearing. And so I just wonder what you thought, you who are not yet in Christ, what you thought when we sang. Maybe you sang it with us, though it would not have yet been true. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. And righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If you can't sing that this morning, you can sing it by the time the day is done. Whatever you've trusted in, it won't stand. If it's anything less than the blood of Jesus that was shed, so we want you to keep coming. Keep coming every week. And we're going to sing to you who our God is. And we pray, even as soon as today, you might join us in singing of all that God has done. Finally, we sing of what the Lord will do. Verses 13 to 21. Moses has rehearsed God's faithfulness in the past. And now he's anticipating God's future faithfulness. So these lyrics, verse 13. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And that single verse is like a little shorthand summary of the entire book of Exodus and really the entire story of Scripture. Your translation might even put that in the future tense. And the ESV is right to put it in the past tense, but it's really this in-between ground. It's, it's like singing of a future hope that is so certain it's as if it's already happened. That's what these words are. And so Moses has just gathered in his arms all these blessings of God's salvation and care. And now he looks to the horizon and he sees that there's even more in store. He sees future grace 
There are several things outlined here that the Lord will do. First, the Lord will lead and guide his people. What we've seen in the past, we will see in the future. The God who goes before his people in steadfast love will lead and guide them with his strength. We see also that the name of the Lord will be made known, verses 14 through 16. This song points forward to the storyline showing this missional rhythm given to the people of God to make known to the nations who God is. We hear already echoes of this event that are reverberating around their neighboring nations. When you get to this part of like, 14 and 15, the inhabitants of Philistia and Edom and Moab and Canaan are mentioned. This is a precursor to America and Brazil and Libya. That the whole nations of the earth might come to know who Jesus is. The great salvation that God has given to his people will reverberate through the whole world. This song of praise is also a reminder that Israel will be a witness to the nations. And it's through them would come the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 12. That through them the nations will be blessed. What does that mean? Well, Jesus Christ who came as, a, as the fulfillment of that promise is how God means to keep his promise. We also see that the Lord will plant his people on his mountain. Now, guys, this is poetic, figurative language. If you need something more concrete, we'll explain this. But isn't that a great picture? That the Lord will plant us. On his mountain. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Israelites would not only be brought out of Egypt, but they would be brought into the promised land that God had covenanted to them. They would be planted on God's mountain. Now, this theme of God dwelling with his people speaks really to the theme of the book of Exodus. Exodus 1 through 14, we've seen that God's people, both then and now, are saved from slavery and death. The theme of Exodus 15 to 40 is that God's people then and now are saved for relationship with God. So we're, we're turning the page now in chapters 15 through 40. We're looking ahead to see this is what we will learn. That we are saved for relationship with God. Verse 17 predicts that the Israelites will dwell with God in an earthly sanctuary. What does that sound like, an earthly sanctuary, like the Garden of Eden? This is a divine reversal of what was witnessed at the fall. There, God's people were sent out of his sacred space, that's Eden, and pushed away from his divine presence. Now, they sing of a coming day where they will experience Eden again. They will live in the presence of God, under the rule and reign of God. In God's place. And when you find those three, three things coinciding together, that is the definition of the kingdom of God to which you and I in Christ belong. And finally, verse 19, we see that the Lord will reign forever. How long is that? Forever. What this does is push our attention past the temporal things and past this temporal world to the heavenlies. And it's there we see, after John tells us in Revelation 13 and 14, how Christ destroys his enemy. 
Then they sing. Do you know what they sing? The song of Moses and the Lamb. They'll sing it even then. What does that mean for you and me? Well, it was sung thousands of years ago after a miraculous, salvific work of God. And it will be sung on the great day when once and for all every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. And now you and I sing of the salvation of God between these two great events, both looking backward and looking forward to the day that will come. The forward hope of Moses that he sings of, we also sing of when we look to Christ. For it is Christ who stands as the shepherd of his people, Christ who has made known among the nations, Christ who has planted us safely in him, and Christ who will reign forever. This would be a wonderful place to end this sermon. But there's one more little account we've just got to look at real quick. So, in verses 19 through 21, let me just explain what's happening here, because this is no inconsequential thing. In 19 through 21, Miriam, who is the sister of Aaron, which means she's also the sister of Moses, she gathers all of these women together, and they start dancing, and they've got tambourines, which are not allowed in our church, by the way, and... Uh, Unless you have rhythm, but most of you don't, so don't do it. But they're, they're like partying. They're like singing of the salvation of the Lord. They're all together. And oh, I just, so there it is. Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, and all these women are, are singing. And then look back with me at verse 1 real quick. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. So who is singing? Who's singing this song? Everybody, everybody's singing this song. Who's featured? Well, these women are featured. Well, that's a surprising thing, isn't it? Not if we've been paying attention. Because it's God showing this upside-downness of how he's saving and how he's working through these quiet women all throughout the story. Do you remember we were first introduced to these two brave women who stood up to uh, abortion being committed in their land? Shipra and Puha. By the way, if you're pregnant and looking for names for your daughters, those would be lovely middle names. But Shipra and Puha. And then, do you remember um, Moses' mom, who saved his life by choosing not to obey? Or his sister, who courageously walks down into the Nile River as Moses is placed into the ark of God? into this basket that would bring salvation to his people. This benevolent daughter of Pharaoh who goes against her dad's order and rescues this little one. Do you remember how just a couple of chapters ago Moses was being an idiot and his wife Zipporah had to save his life on the way back? And here his sister Miriam is seen, this little girl who attended him at the Nile River. Now leading the people in song. What a significant position this is. What a wonderful God this is who works in such surprising ways. You just had to see that. And notice they're all singing. This is one of the reasons we believe in congregational singing here. Like we have a great 
band, and David does such a wonderful job, but they're not here for our entertainment, are they? No, they're just, they're just making sure we're in the right key as we sing together. And what a gift it is to sing together. So as we walk this pilgrim pathway through life, my prayer is the great salvation that God has given us would fill our hearts with adoration and our mouths with singing. Our salvation was meant to be sung. What God has done for you in the story of your own life is meant to culminate in the praise of God. So ultimately, you know, there's been like zero application in this sermon because I think the only application is that the song of Moses would become our own, that we would join in proclaiming glory to God, singing in remembrance of all that God has done and looking with hope to the future, singing of all that he will do. This is the song of Moses, and I pray it will also be ours. Let's ask the Lord of that now. Father, thank you for this stunning song, and I ask that in your kindness and grace, we would sing of the salvation of God like never before. We would see it and savor it like never before. And I pray for those who have never sung from a place of experience that today might be the day of salvation. That you would put a song of salvation in their hearts. And you would do all of this for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.